You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host from New York City, Ankit Panda. And this is Prashant Parmas. We're in from Washington, D.C. Good to be back with you, Prashant. How have you been? Good. How are you doing? Doing well. Just uh, got back from a uh, long trip to uh, Russia, which was uh, mm-hmm. quite illuminating. Of course, we're not going to be talking about that today, uh, but we have a couple a couple topics lined up for today's discussion. Um, two significant developments. One, uh, I guess on the positive end of the spectrum and the other on the negative, depending on your perspective. Uh, But the first thing we'll talk about is the decision last week by the South Korean government to announce that it would not be renewing the 2016 General Security of Military Information Agreement, or GSOMIA, that it had concluded with Japan. We'll talk a bit about the consequences of that. And uh, then moving on, um, I guess on the the more... uh, uplifting side of the ledger. We'll talk a bit about the first ever U.S. ASEAN maritime exercise, which uh, you've written a lot about uh, at The Diplomat. So uh, yeah, so that'll be the two topics we'll talk about. But uh, first, why don't we uh, talk a bit about this GSOMIA decision? I mean, uh, did you see that coming? Um, I mean, I I think this is something which, you know, as we talked about previously on on this podcast, um, you know, the relationship between Japan and South Korea has been deteriorating. Um, But I, I do think that um, for the United States in particular, this is a pretty concerning development. And you've seen that with U.S. officials sort of talk about this as, you know, kind of a, a very concerning uh, spiral that's uh, developing between Japan and South Korea. Um, Randy Schreiber, the the Pentagon's top official for Asia, you know, told uh, CSIS in a discussion with Victor Cha that, um, you know, the first rule of holes, uh, if you're engaged in them between two countries, is like you stop digging. Uh, but it appears that this is something which, you know, both sides are are unwilling to sort of give up on this sort of escalation path that they're on. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, we we talked a little bit about this on the first podcast that we did about the declining relationship between South Korea and Japan. So uh, listeners, if you're if you're uh, if you missed that podcast, I'd recommend uh, going back and listening to that because I think it sets a lot of the tone for uh, how we actually got to this point, uh, because, you know, uh, the South Korean withdrawal from this agreement wasn't necessarily out of the blue. Um, and so, you know, we should probably talk a bit about what the agreement actually is, because I think there's uh, some kind of misunderstanding about what exactly GSOMIA was and what it does. So uh, it, uh, so for the first thing to say is that GSOMIAs are a generic type of agreement that uh, South Korea has with uh, more than 30 countries, that the United States has with many more countries. It's often considered sort of a foundational agreement for any kind of um you know, burgeoning military partnership. Mm-hmm. What it does is it allows uh, the two participating countries, in the case of our discussion today, South Korea and Japan, to exchange what's known as classified military information or CMI through mutually agreed upon procedures. It does not mandate either side to share information. That was a common sort of misperception in South Korea when the political debates there were happening uh, back in uh, 2015 and 2016 about approving the agreement. Uh, The South Korean progressives who are now in charge in Seoul were very concerned that this agreement would um, take away South Korea's sovereignty and effectively require Seoul to share sensitive military information with, uh, with Tokyo. But it doesn't do that. It simply sets up the basis for the South Koreans to ask the Japanese to share certain bits of sensitive information, such as when a ballistic missile launch from North Korea happens, the South Koreans can check their data against what Japan has and compare notes if they, if they were to choose to do so. Mm-hmm. And so the other component is that uh, in, in sort of Northeast Asia trilaterally, 
uh, you're looking at a very different array of sort of sensors available to uh, South Korea, Japan, and the United States, certainly, when it comes to tracking things like North Korean ballistic missile launches. For the Obama administration, which was sort of instrumental in promoting the conclusion of the GSOMIA between uh, the two U.S. allies, uh, this was a major sort of justification. It was that, well, under, North, um, under Kim Jong-un, we're seeing this uh, very quickly improving pace of ballistic missile launch activities. So I think our two allies should really conclude this agreement to better share information and coordinate. So, uh, for instance, the South Koreans rely only on uh, terrestrial sensors to track North Korean missile launches, which is pretty limiting. But, of course, in the context of the U.S.-South Korea alliance, uh, the South Koreans get very rapid access to the U.S. Um, sensor array, which is land, sea, air, and space-based. So the United States has the best information about um, you know, let's say the components of a um, a North Korean ballistic missile launch. It can, it can track, you know, the time it happens, the location it happens, and share that with the South Koreans. But Japan, mm-hmm. by contrast, has a has a slightly larger sensor array. So, in the context of sort of trilateralism, um, it's it's always better to have more sensors available to you when you're trying to track something like a missile launch. So, GSOMIA was a way to sort of make that process a lot more streamlined. Uh, without the agreement, what used to happen was that. You know, the analogy that I used was the the idea of the United States sort of having to run between two rooms to, you know, talk to the South Koreans, get what the South Koreans told them, and then run to the next room and then tell the Japanese what the South Koreans said, as opposed to the South Koreans and the Japanese just being able to talk to each other about these questions. Mm-hmm. So that's really what we've lost here. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And I, I think that's a really critical point to emphasize, right? Because it gets to this point which... For U.S. policy, a long-standing goal has been um, sort of encouraging more networking between these various alliances and partnerships that they have. And Japan and South Korea are obviously the the best test cases for that because within the Asia-Pacific, they're the two sort of broad and, and most uh, sort of developed and mature alliances there. Um, but in, with respect to the actual realities, um, you know, the fact is that the United States and its relationship with Japan and South Korea individually um, you know, transcend, transcends by multiple uh, sort of uh, levels what Japan and South Korea enjoy with each other. And I think that's, I think, part of the U.S. concern, which is that, you know, if, if Japan and South Korea are not doing their own bit uh, for the alliance network, then the United States has to do more of this running around between the two countries. And that, I think the other part of this that's really interesting is, I mean, you have the Trump administration that's coming in that's talking about, we need to have greater greater clarity about this sort of China threat. And, you know, we have these, you know, network of alliances and partnerships that we're trying to bring to bear uh, with respect to a a rising China. But whenever you have disagreements between these individual allies and partners, that actually makes the picture a lot more complicated uh, for the United States and U.S. policy. So I think that partly also motivates the frustration (laughs) among U.S. policymakers, which is that, you know, when this stuff happens, the only you know, people that benefit are, are U.S. competitors, right? That's right. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, the other the other point I think worth emphasizing on uh, GSOMIA is the implications, I think, in particular for the U.S.-South Korea alliance. Uh, so, you know, a lot, of, a lot of observers I spoke to sort of thought that, you know, GSOMIA would perhaps be the red line for Seoul. I mean, we'd heard it mooted back in July after the export controls. The South Koreans were talking about, well, maybe we should withdraw from GSOMIA. But at the time, I think a lot of observers sort of took it as an example of brinksmanship, that Seoul really wanted Washington to intervene in the dispute between um, itself and Japan on, on the South Korean side. And of course, Washington was unwilling to do that. But when South Korea finally pulled the plug on GSOMIA or said that it won't renew the agreement, I think um, you know some people were just caught off guard. And I think especially in D.C., uh, among mm-hmm. some people who worked on 
the um, the GSOMIA trilateral negotiations um, under the Obama administration, uh, or rather the U.S. role in promoting the bilateral talks between the two sides, were, were a little bit, I mean, shocked by this because I think it's really a, a poor message from South Korea saying that, you know, this agreement that was very important to the United States isn't really worth keeping for them, uh, I mean, in the context of the alliance. And I think that's going to have a little bit of a blowback. And of course, you know, as, as you and I know, I mean, the Trump administration's broader approach to the U.S.-South Korea alliance has already created mm-hmm. a broader range of problems. So I think, I think this only puts the alliance in a, uh, in a more difficult position um, going forward. But I mean, the final thing to be said, you know, I mean, there's I, I've seen some commentary saying that, you know, South Korea withdrawing from GSOMIA is sort of going to be a huge blow to South Korean national security. I think that's a little bit overdone. I mean, given that the you know, this is a foundational agreement, um, mm-hmm. nothing. It's not particularly the basis for a South Korea-Japan alliance, certainly something like that. And, you know, as long as South Korea does have access to the U.S. Uh, sensor data, at least at least with regards to North Korea, um, I think the, the level of readiness of the alliance does remain particularly high. Obviously, I think what's lost is that symbolic aspect of trilateralism and and networking, as as you uh, mentioned. And that does have consequences, I think, for for broader security um, in, in Northeast Asia. Uh, but certainly, you know, I think we're I think we're looking to see where this might go next. Uh, the South Korean prime minister, um, Lee Nyakon, who's a. Uh, Who's a Japan specialist, actually? I mean, he's actually raised the prospect that GSOMIA could be renewed if mm-hmm. uh, if Japan were to pull back uh, its export controls and uh, trade restrictions on South Korea. So it seems like there's at least some interest in using this as a bargaining chip. And you know, I've been talking to a few folks uh, based in Seoul, and sort of the understanding that I get from from those conversations is that there is sort of palace politics going on here. I mean, the South Korean left, there are a variety of views about the advisability of withdrawing from GSOMIA. For instance, the National Intelligence Service, NIS, was mm-hmm. um, vocally actually against the withdrawal, um, saying that it, it did suit South Korea's national security interests. But um, there are sort of others in the Blue House uh, more focused on domestic issues that saw this as a as a, um, as a huge political win. And it's been broadly popular in South Korea, where, um, as we discussed on the last podcast, anti-Japan sentiment is, um, is growing rather rapidly in this um, unprecedented crisis between the two countries. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I would uh, flag for listeners, um, your, the interview that you did with uh, Jim Schof that came out in, in our latest uh, issue of the magazine, um, where you know he's somebody who's watched these issues for a long time, and and even he is you know very concerned. I think throughout the interview about the prospects for Japan South Korea relations, and I think the the big issue to my mind is you know how does this all play out in the future, right? Because the um, agreement expires officially in November uh, later this year, so it'd be interesting to see how both sides navigate um, the political and security dynamics going forward. Yeah, and, uh, and you know, I mean, obviously, the North Koreans actually gave uh, the region a reminder about why something like JSOMIA was useful. They conducted a ballistic <laughs> missile launch yeah. just uh, days after the South Koreans um, announced that they'd be withdrawing from the agreement. So yeah, I mean, absolutely, a lot can happen between now and November. Um, but uh, I, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't hold my breath for this uh, crisis between the two countries to resolve itself anytime soon. Um, so I guess on that note, let's um, switch gears to the second part of our discussion today, Prashant. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess we're just on the eve of the start of the first ever uh, U.S. ASEAN uh, maritime exercise, which will be taking place in the waters in the South China Sea. Uh, so you wrote a bit about uh, you know why this was significant and sort of um, where this was coming from. So uh, do you want to tell us a bit about um, what exactly we can expect from, uh, from this first um, maritime exercise between the two sides? Sure. I mean, I, I think, you know, the, the details so far, um, you know, it's been really interesting seeing, you know, what 
um, all sides have been saying about this actual engagement. So what we know so far is that, I mean, it's going to take place um, between September 2nd to September 6th. And we know that, you know, in terms of locations, it's going to kick off, um, you know, from Thailand and, and go through uh, Vietnam. And it's going to involve, as, as with many of these exercises, it, it's sort of the banner is a U.S. ASEAN maritime exercise, but the actual involvement by various Southeast Asian countries will be vary, right? So usually, you know, there'll be some countries that contribute uh, vessels, others will, will send observers. So this, this stuff is actually uh, pretty varied in terms of the level of participation. But in terms of the broader geopolitical significance of this, since since you know we're on an Asia geopolitics podcast, for from a U.S. perspective, it's it's significant because it allows the United States to say that this is kind of the first of its kind multilateral U.S. ASEAN engagement. That matters because China held its first multilateral uh, engagement and exercise with ASEAN last year, um, and so it it allows uh, for the for the United States to say, well, you know, it, it is multilateralizing and developing. Uh, its exercises, it allows ASEAN to sort of say that, hey, we're, you know, we're balancing various powers. You know, in this environment of U.S.-China competition, we, we've done an exercise with the Chinese. Now we're doing an exercise uh, with the United States. But in terms of the broader um, actual implications for for security, I mean, I would, you know, put in a word of caution here that there's actually a lot more continuity than change with respect to the U.S.-ASEAN maritime exercise. The United States already has a broad array of exercises that it conducts with individual Southeast Asian states. Um, and I think it, this represents just one step forward um, in that process. But the re- reason why this will get a lot of headlines and, and a lot of press is because, you know, we're in this environment of U.S.-China competition, right? So where every development that that comes, uh, whether it's on the China part or the U.S. part, will be analyzed for what it says about U.S.-China competition in the broader Indo-Pacific region. Um, and, you know, you have developments such as, you know, China's, you know, as as has been reported, including for us at The Diplomat, uh, Carl Thayer has done some good work for us on this. Um, you know, the chi- China has been trying to obstruct um, and limit uh, U.S. engagement with Southeast Asian nations on the security side, including on exercises. So this stuff has, um, you know, probably in terms of operationally, um, a little bit less than what the hype actually represents. But in terms of geopolitical conversation, it's extremely important and significant. And I think we'll see a lot of commentary uh, following the exercise. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, I think that's a good note of caution, because, uh, you know, what we're seeing, I think, by the fact of these exercises taking place is a manifestation of the state of US ASEAN outreach that really began in the final years of the Obama administration sort of leading up Mm -hmm. to this point. Um, But, uh, you know, as you noted, politically, the problems that have sort of bedeviled ASEAN when it comes to navigating so-called great power competition um, and even the South China Sea disputes, I think those very much will remain unchanged as a result of these exercises, right? I mean, in fact, the exercises mm-hmm. might even be seen as completely um, orthogonal to to the broader political issues that um, that are um, currently still a problem for ASEAN, including engagement with China on the, on a binding um, code of conduct for the South China Sea. Those talks are, are still underway. Um, but broadly, I mean, you know, from, um, you know, after this exercise occurs, obviously, I think, you know, um, this is not going to be the basis for a, a transformation in ASEAN's broader security role uh, in the region. But, mm-hmm. but what is, you know, what is the significance of this as sort of a stepping stone for the future of, of US ASEAN cooperation? Does this actually get us to a, a, a new place with ASEAN, um, or are we sort of um, still looking at a, a common set of problems to uh, 
to sort of inhibit uh, further cooperation here? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, and I think this the, the broader question that that gets to is, you know, what is the role of Southeast Asia and U.S.-Southeast Asia cooperation in this idea of the U.S. free and open Indo-Pacific strategy, which, the, you know, the Trump administration has defined? And it, it really is pretty unclear. I mean, you and I were at the Shangri-La Dialogue when, um, you know, the former acting uh, defense secretary, uh, Shanahan, was, you know, unveiling the U.S. Indo-Pacific uh, strategy report. Um, you know, and the fact that we have this report coming out from uh, the Defense Department and the Pentagon, but we haven't seen a, a sort of U.S. government-wide effort to actually implement the strategy really speaks to a lot of where U.S.-ASEAN relations are. So under the Obama administration, you had a comprehensive effort to engage ASEAN on economics, on diplomacy, on security, you know, across the board, people-to-people ties, so on and so forth. Under the Trump administration, I think from a Southeast Asian perspective and an ASEAN perspective, um, you know, a lot of the stuff has actually come on the security side rather than on other aspects of, of relations. And in fact, some of the obstacles and challenges have actually broadened, you know, with, with the Trump administration's notion of, you know, economic protectionism and addressing trade deficits and so on and so forth. So I think this this U.S. ASEAN maritime exercise, on the one hand, it's encouraging in the sense that the United States is paying more attention to Southeast Asia for security trends um, and with respect to China. And that's actually something which the Obama administration didn't do as much. There wasn't as much clarity on the China threat question. But if you look at the broader issue of U.S.-Southeast Asia relations, I think the greater demand in Southeast Asia, you know, when you talk to diplomats um, and other observers is, you know, there's a lot going on, on the security side, and that's great. But, you know, what is the other what are the other aspects of the Indo-Pacific strategy and what can Southeast Asia and ASEAN play in that? And I think this this uh, notion of an exercise doesn't really get to that bigger question that uh, remains and begs among these countries. I mean, the other the other issue is whenever you have U.S. ASEAN engagements of any kind, it gets to this issue of, you know, what is the distinction between Southeast Asia and ASEAN, Right. So we talk about a U.S. ASEAN maritime exercise. ASEAN actually just on its own held its first naval exercise back in 2017. So this is something which, you know, ASEAN uses uh, major power engagement as a way to get the grouping to come together on its own terms. And, you know, 10 very diverse countries in Southeast Asia, that's a huge challenge and continues to be a huge challenge. So important not to confuse U.S. ASEAN engagement with U.S. Southeast Asia engagement. Yeah, no, I think I think I think that's a good uh, cautionary note. Um, and you know, the only other thing I'll I'll mention is that uh, I think uh, earlier this summer we talked a bit about the various um, modes in which you know China has been testing various ASEAN South China Sea claimants this summer, mm-hmm. uh, including the Philippines, Malaysia, Vietnam, certainly. Um, and you know, as as I think listeners can probably tell from this discussion, that just didn't come up because I mean that conversation remains very much um, separate from these uh, U.S. ASEAN maritime exercises. I think ASEAN especially is not in a place where it can be seen as uh, inviting the United States uh, into the neighborhood to sort of deal with China on these issues, especially given its own bilateral concerns with China, or rather not bilateral but multilateral um, in in the ASEAN China context. Uh, so I think I think that again I think highlights the uh, limitations of this um, ASEAN ASEAN U.S. path. No, absolutely. And and I'm glad you brought that up because I think, you know, we've discussed this on, on the podcast previously, but, you know, Vietnam will be holding the ASEAN chairmanship in 2020. And the last time that Vietnam held the chairmanship was when we saw, you know, heightened concern and, and issues with respect to the South China Sea with Hillary Clinton under the then Obama administration talking about U.S. interests in the South China Sea and, and China reacting 
you know, predictably, um, you know, in a very concerned uh, fashion. So I think for the Vietnamese, it'd be really interesting to see how they navigate the 2020 ASEAN chairmanship. And, you know, what does that mean for the United States and for China? That's a really big issue that we're seeing in 2020. Absolutely. Well, uh, yeah, we'll keep a we'll keep a close eye on uh, all these developments. Well, um, I think I think we'll wrap up the conversation there today, Prashant. How does that sound? Sounds good. All right. Uh, thanks a lot for joining me. Good to be with you. Great. Uh, for listeners, uh, before we go, just a note from our sponsor. This episode of the Asia Geopolitics Podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the Consulting and Analysis Division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risks. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. So if you like what you heard on the podcast, also make sure that you subscribe on either iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or any other number of services. And if you've been a subscriber for a while, we'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a rating on any of those services as well. That really helps get the word out about the show. So thanks a lot for listening, and Prashant and I will be back next week with more.